All I have to say is that uh, it's a joy to be with you all. I'm glad you're here, and we'll worship the Lord together. We'll keep Christ-centric in our in our topic. And uh, you know, there is a uh, there's a danger in procrastination. Um, last week, after my message, I I kind of sat back and and uh, relaxed for a while. I thought, you know, Pastor Virgil Reeve is going to come and speak this next Sunday, and so I don't have, I've got a week that I can go ahead and postpone preparation for my next message. And uh, lo and behold, on uh, Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock, I got a call from Evelyn Reeve, Pastor Virgil's wife, saying that he was admitted to the hospital with a medical emergency. And so uh, we won't be able to make it. Now that's That to me was uh, instant panic. Normally it would be instant panic. Um, I think, Karen, you'd say I handled that pretty well, but uh, anyhow, because I did have the kind of the outline of the message together. But, you know, it it just put a burden on other people in the church. Uh, Now, God's sovereign hand was in it. We understand that. And pastor is doing well, from what I understand. But I do I appreciate uh, Brian and Tina for reacting and responding to me and, and getting the music set up at the last minute and doing the children's notes and. Other things, I just really appreciate the way everybody responded. I asked Stan Brandon to do prayer meeting this morning, and he did a, an excellent job on that, and um, Andy to do scripture reading and prayer. So we just praise the Lord. This is our family. We love our family, and, uh, you know, it's, I just I don't know how people can make it without the Lord. I just don't. Well, uh, next week we'll, we'll be honored to have Patrick Lohner preaching for us. I called him yesterday, and uh, he's an excellent uh, preacher from Grace Reformed Baptist Church. And Jody's brother. Is Jody here this morning? No? Is she? Where is Jody? Oh, oh, she's in the nursery. Oh, I thought maybe she was at the hospital already. <laughs> because when I was talking to her yesterday, she thought, today was today her delivery date? Okay, Brian. Well, I told her we'd mention... Her one way or another, either she's at the hospital or she's expecting real quick. I'd like you to turn your Bible to um, Matthew 22. We're going to continue with our, our message, which is, Are You Worthy of the Kingdom? And Chuck, if you could go ahead and put those verses. It's uh, part three of our message. It'll be verses 11 through 14. And it says this, this is Matthew 22, 11 through 14. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we just come to you with open hands, Father, this morning, and ready hearts, and tongues that are are ready to sing your praises. And so, Father, as we open up the Word of God, we ask that you'd speak to us. Father, your your Word is powerful and and uh, effective in our in our lives. Now, Father, we aim to glorify you, to edify believers, and to notify 
non-believers. And Father, I think about uh, Pastor Virgil Reeve as he's in the hospital today. Thank you for this mighty servant of God. Thank you for his years, his 50 years of ministry in the pulpit and how he was willing to come here as an 80-year-old individual and teach us about Bible study and the importance of the Word and how much he loves the Word of God. Father, please touch his body and heal him. I pray that you be with his wife, Evelyn, lovely, lovely lady. Father, I pray for Steve and Darren again. I just ask that as they're preparing to uh, teach and preparing to help at the children's home, that you would guide and direct. Father, may you come and visit them today. And Father, please come and visit us today here at Rock Valley Bible Church. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Well, just by, by way of uh, review, I wanted to spend a little time. Hi, Jody. You're here. Good. <laughs> Brian said you were, but I wasn't sure. Maybe you'd gone to the hospital, you know, since he said that. But <laughs> um, Part one of our message last week uh, dealt with verses one through seven. And we call that the great celebration. And of course, the king in a land in that land decided to have a wedding feast for his son. And of course, this is all symbolic of the gospel. Jesus Christ is giving a parable here to the Pharisees and scribes, but what he's really doing is he's giving the gospel to these people. He's doing it in such a way that they could easily understand what he's talking about. Well, of course, the king represents God. The bridegroom represents Jesus Christ. And the bride represents the church. And the invitation is to attend a great wedding feast, which has been in preparation for 2,000 years. And the great wedding feast, of course, is the joining of, of the church with Jesus. You could call it the marriage feast of the Lamb, if you will. But that particular message and that invitation went out to the Jews, to God's chosen people. What was being offered at the marriage feast? Well, really, from a scriptural standpoint, there's a number of things that were promised in the great covenant that he had with his children, Israel. The new covenant, which is released from the bondage of the law. And one of the things that we understand about the law is it really did two things. It showed the nation how to how to conduct themselves in a civil, righteous way. But it also did something else. The law was really meant to crush us. And I like to use that term, to crush us, because really it's impossible to keep the law. And that was God's intent. God's intent was that we would realize we couldn't keep the law. We couldn't keep the Ten Commandments. And so we were driven to our knees and cry out to God that there must be some other way. And, of course, he says, yes, there is another way. It's the new covenant. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that will cover over this law. Secondly, final pardon from sin. No longer a sacrifice would be needed. No longer does, do the people of Israel have to go to Jerusalem for the sacrificial events. You don't need that anymore. You're going to be pardoned forever. There is one sacrificial event. The Lamb of God is sacrificed for you all. We receive the favor of God. We no longer have to go through a priest There's no intermediary required at that point. No priest. And the priest, of course, is representing the people to God. We can cut him out. And I I so much, um, I feel very, very 
pitiful for, I have a lot of pity for people that feel like, like they need to go through the priest, even today, in, in churches, uh, that they need a pastor that they have to use as an intermediary to go to God. We don't need that anymore. We, we can go to God, our Father, call him Abba, Daddy. The peace that comes with the right conscience, and that's the process of sanctification. And I like to say that's becoming in our, in our bodies what we are in our position in Christ. We're being sanctified daily. The promise of the Holy Spirit was another thing that was going to be given out at the wedding feast. The promise of the Holy Spirit. You know, there are only 17 to 20 references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Now, this is review. You've heard it before, but I like to tell it again. We like to hear the gospel story over and over again. We never get tired of hearing it. But the Holy Spirit was meant to indwell us, to fill us, and empower us. It's impossible to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it. It's like trying to keep the law. We can't. So we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He promised that to us. And there's probably 300 different passages in the New Testament that talk about the filling, empowering, dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the promise of eternal life. Well, this invitation went out for the people of God, the Jews, to come to the wedding, receive these wonderful features and benefits of the covenant that were promised to them. And what was their response at the first invitation, there was passive indifference. They went off to wherever. They didn't respond. They ignored the messengers. That's what I call passive indifference. The second invitation was sent out. And of course, at that time, the, the king told the messengers, you know, really sell these people on the idea of this wedding feast and what they're going to re- receive by coming. Well, the harder they sold this wedding feast, the more reaction they got. And in fact, they got active rebellion because the servants were mistreated and they were actually killed. They were destroyed for their message. And of course, these prophets signify in the Old Testament the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and those people that were martyred because of their message. And in the New Testament, we have John the Baptist and the apostles and Jesus Christ himself. So what was the consequence of the rejection? This passive indifference and active rebellion against God. Well, the king becomes enraged because, really, I believe, they went a step too far. They killed the messengers. They killed God's beloved prophets and messengers to include his beloved son, Jesus. God fulfilled his part of the covenant, didn't he? He brought the Messiah to them. But they didn't fulfill their part of the bargain, their part of the covenant. And that was sort of conditional because what God was saying to these people is that if you love me, if you serve me, if you obey me, if you don't worship these other gods, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make you sovereign over the world. A blessing to many nations. Well, what this really amounted to was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And God would have none of it. Now, there has been much speculation about this, but of course, in 70 A.D., the Romans came and destroyed God's city, Jerusalem. Over a million people were killed during that time, and, and those tribes were scattered throughout the world. In fact, nobody knows where the ten tribes are at. I think they've accounted for two. And Tom, maybe you would know more about that than I would, but two tribes, I think, are left to be identified. The rest are gone into history. 
So we look at part one. It ends with a very stern warning. And we put the non-believers on notice and say, take note what happens when you don't come to the wedding celebration. But for you believers, there's also a message in it. And he bids you. He beckons you. He says, you folks, beckon people to come to the wedding feast. You must encourage them to come to experience God's blessing. End of part one. Part two, the great surprise. And it was under the direction of God's sovereign hand that the rejection of the Messiah opened the door to we as Gentiles. Hallelujah for that. Now, it was always God's plan to include us, but it wasn't very evident in the Old Testament, and it wasn't very evident to the Jews. Now, if you looked hard enough, you could see us included in the promise. But the third invitation went out. God is very patient. He sends another invitation out. And this time, it's to the people in the highways and byways. It's to the people out there, the second-class citizens, the common people, just everyday Joe and Mary Gentile. Come and bring these people to the wedding feast, both evil and good. Now, I was talking to somebody last week, and, and they wondered, well, what does evil and good mean? Well, it was really just a moral uh, declaration more than anything. It doesn't say these people were righteous. In fact, these people were unworthy just like the Jews were in part one. We as Gentiles were unworthy as well. What was the response to the second or the third invitation? It was a huge success. The wedding hall was filled. The king comes in and he looks over the wedding guests. And the thing that really I, has struck me over the last couple of weeks as I was going over these passages is that, um, you know, we have to understand that we as Gentiles were really not part of that first covenant. In fact, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Hopeless. Without Christ, as I said last week, fat, dumb, and happy and on our way to hell. And that's exactly where we were. So the conclusion is both bad news and good news. The bad news is that the people of the covenant, the Jews, rejected their Messiah. But the good news is that Jesus becomes the Messiah to all of us, to all people. Again, he bids you, non-believer, will you come to the wedding? Will you come to the wedding? Will you come to that marriage feast? And believers, beckon those to come to the wedding feast. It's our obligation to do that. Now we come to part three. Matthew 20, 11 to 14. And my three points is what is the meaning of the wedding garment? Who is the great pretender? And how does one become worthy of the kingdom? Verse 11 says this, But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes or wedding garment. I like to call it the garment. You know, the king went in there to examine the guests. Of course, he was pleased that we had a hall full of wedding guests. They responded. The Gentiles saw the opportunity of the blessing of the covenant. And they came, which was wonderful. But you know, these were pagans. And so the king is going in there and he's saying, well, what, what sort of uh, people are these? You know, all sorts of characters these pagans were. And so the word for to look closely is a Greek word. 
And it really says to inspect or examine very carefully. He wanted to make sure that the people that were there were supposed to be there. It wasn't a cursory look. He took his time about examining these people. So the king identifies somebody who was not supposed to be there. This man was a party crasher and a freeloader. And whenever you see people, you hear stories of people that have been uh, freeloaders or party crashers to weddings in the past. And I think I ended last week by saying that uh, my son and his wife had the opportunity of addressing a wedding crasher at their, at their wedding. Now what happened, you know, to be fair about it, um, what happened was one of his friends who was kind of a troublesome individual was on his way to the, uh, to the wedding and um, happened to see a homeless guy with a sign, picked him up. <laughs> hey, would you like a free meal? <laughs> and invited him to come to the wedding. Well, normally, if, if they had checked with Philip ahead of time, that would have been okay, I suppose. But my son had to deal with that. And the bride was very upset about it. <laughs> very upset. In fact, she just said, she said, I, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. You know, it was her special day. Well, here's this party crasher, and he's blending in with everybody else. You know, he, he talks the talk. He blends in with everybody else. He's from the same neighborhoods. He walks the same streets. He's probably saying things like hallelujah and praise to the king and has all the right words to say. He's probably blending in very well, eating and drinking and dancing and having a great time. But nobody notices that he's not supposed to be there except the king himself. He's not fooled. You know, he fooled the wedding servants. And one of the things I want to tell you church family is this. Those servants that went out and bid the people to come to the wedding ceremony in the Old Testament and bid those people to come to the wedding ceremony in the New Testament today are right here, sitting out here. It's you all. We're the servants that are bidding people, beckoning people to come to the wedding feast. Now, in our small group, Paul and I were talking about this. He pointed out the fact that, you know, we as the Servants, as the invitors to the wedding feast, we don't know if these people we're inviting are pretenders or not. That's up to God to sort out. And that's very true. I'd never thought about that before. We're not there to, to condemn or condone. We're there to sow the word, sow the seed. What about this wedding garment? Well, in ancient times at royal weddings, there was a habit or a, a custom that the king gave a special robe or a wedding garment or clothes to their wedding guests. And it was a show of honor. The king was honoring his guests to come to the wedding. And to refuse the wedding garment was the epitome of an insult to the king. So how did the king know this guest didn't have the proper attire? Well, because the king issued the authentic article. Now, how does the king know who should be at the wedding feast and who should not? How should God know who should be at the wedding feast and who will, should not be there? Well, 2 Timothy 2.9 gives us some insight. It says, The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The Old Testament also gives us some ideas as to, as to what this wedding garment is about. And so we turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 10. 
The wedding garment is talked about. He says this. He says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord my soul. My soul. I will exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. The robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland. And as a bride adores herself with jewels. Isn't that interesting? Now throughout the scripture we're told that a white robe or a white wedding garment or something white is a sign of purity and holiness. And I believe when we participate in the marriage of the Lamb, and this is just speculation, that we'll be wearing white robes, white garments that specify holiness and purity before the Lord. Now, some have described this garment as the righteousness of Christ or holiness of the heart. You know, the symbolism is very significant here because we have to understand that this righteousness, this righteous robe that makes us worthy to attend the wedding feast, which is really entering heaven, can only be issued by God the Father himself. Well, who is the pretender? Matthew twenty-two twelve says this. He says, And I said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Friend. He calls him friend. And, and we kind of knocked that around in small group the other night as well. You know, did he mean this in a sarcastic way? Or was it a term of endearment? I don't know. I'll let you kind of decide that on your own. You know, personally, I feel it was a term of endearment. I think God was trying to, or the king was trying to reach out to this man because he gives him a chance to respond, doesn't he? He addresses the pretender. And so, this pretender is somebody symbolic. And, and it's important for you to understand what the symbolism is here. It's symbolic for anyone who tries to enter, to enter heaven on his own terms. He tries to enter heaven on his own terms. He's crashing the party. He's wearing his own garment of righteousness. You know, as he entered the wedding hall, he probably was greeted by the servants at the door who said, you know, take this garment that the king has provided for you. It's the garment of righteousness. And this individual probably said, you know, um, no thanks, I've brought my own. The king doesn't need to trouble himself because uh, I'm providing my own garment and it, it's just as good and it's just like his. I'm wearing my own garment today. Well, I don't know what the servant's response was. It doesn't say, but I think that's probably what happened. So he enters the wedding banquet with his own garment. He had a garment of some kind to wear, and he went in. And the thing we have to understand about this pretender is that, really, that's a very important group of people in this passage of Scripture because we, we mentioned two former groups. first group were the Jews. The second group was or were the Gentiles. The third group is what we call the group of pretenders. The pretenders. In some translations of scriptures, they call it hypocrites. They call these the hypocrites. And these pretenders are all around us. They may be good citizens, moral family people, active in charities, but their good works do not allow them to be worthy enough to wear the wedding garment. And these people are described in Matthew 7.21. It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Let me say it again. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
religious folks, good people, charitable people, people that go to church, they won't enter the kingdom. They're not worthy to enter the kingdom. Who is? The one who does the will of my Father will enter into heaven. So we have to determine the will of our Father, don't we? Well, the religious people, good people, generous people, kind people, helpful people who do not do the will of the Father because, well, they're unworthy. They can't earn the garments by their own works. Those garments are only issued by God the Father himself. Now, here's the hard message in the pretender. In the pretender. There are pretenders in our churches. Uh, pastor friend of mine said years ago, he said, Phil, one of the things when I was, we were talking about the mission field and going out into the community and going out into the world, and he says, you know, Phil, you may not realize this, but some of the greatest mission field we have to reach are right here in our own church. I said, well, isn't everybody a Christian in this church? No, he said they aren't. And what he did uh, was kind of help me understand that we need to continually preach the gospel because people in our own church don't know or have a relationship with Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Recently, I borrowed a book from Steve, and it's called The 50 People Every Christian Should Know. And it's short stories about Christian people, Charles Spurgeon, um, Dwight Moody, A.J. Tozer, a lot of other folks in here that you might have heard or might not have heard. And uh, you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, and we've often quoted Jonathan Edwards from this pulpit in times past as one of the greatest successful preachers in our church history. Well, that's only partially so. You see, Jonathan Edwards' grandfather, and his name was Solomon Stoddard, started a church in New England. Well, I don't know if he started a church, but he had a church in New England that Jonathan Edwards inherited. And I want to read a paragraph for you out of this book to show you where these pretenders are and how Jonathan Edwards had to deal with them. He said this. He says, The church is operated under what is known as the halfway covenant. Halfway covenant? What's that? This permitted people to unite with the church if they had been baptized but had not made a profession of faith in Christ. Isn't that interesting? They were baptized as infants. Their children children were then baptized as halfway members but they were not permitted to share the Lord's Supper or vote in churches' elections. Now listen to what happens to this church. He said, but Solomon Stoddard, Jonathan Edwards' grandfather, had gone even further in opening the doors of the church to unsaved people. He decided that the Lord's Supper was a saving ordinance and that unconverted people should not be barred from the table. The result, of course, was a church composed largely of unconverted people who gave lip service to the doctrine, but who never experienced the life of God in their own hearts. Now, Jonathan Edwards went into that kind of church where people were allowed to come in without a profession of faith and become voting members. Jonathan Edwards served in that pulpit for 21 years and saw very little fruit born as a result of it. And in fact, they dismissed Jonathan Edwards. They fired him at the end of 21 years because of his efforts to convert his own flock, the great pretenders. Well, this morning in Rockford, Illinois, there are many pretenders attending church. In fact, there are many great pretenders preaching in pulpits around town. They're saying things like, you know, God loves everyone and 
he wouldn't possibly send people to hell. Or there are many ways to enter the pearly gates. Or Allah, the God of the Muslims, is the same God that we worship. Or we shouldn't be so narrow-minded as to think that there is only one way to God. Or how about this one? You need to be baptized in order to be saved and get into heaven. That's being preached from our pulpits this, this morning, right here in Rockford, Illinois. Well, <clears throat> how can we determine who these pretenders are, especially in our churches? You know, there's certainly scriptural guidelines that give us some ways of uh, being able to tell who these pretenders are. You know, we can determine and address sin. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7:15 and 16, he says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, They are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? You'll know them by their fruits. There's ways to be able to determine these pretenders. Now, let me give you an example of how this works. Does anybody here have a dollar bill? Dirk, do you have a dollar bill, or does Nancy have all the money? Nancy, do you have a dollar bill? Anybody have a dollar bill real quick? They can... Steve, okay, Steve's going to pull one out of his wallet. You know, one of the things I learned years ago was how does, how do you determine if this is a counterfeit bill or not? Well, let me tell you what the treasury agents are trained to do. Treasury agents in this country are trained to pick up counterfeit bills and to immediately be able to identify them. You and I wouldn't know the difference. Those pretender bills are out there. How do they train the treasury agent to determine if this is a real bill or a phony? Well, this is how they do it. That treasury agent spends months examining what's in that bill. Looks at George Washington's face. Looks at all the lines. Looks at all the numbers. Looks at the color feels the texture, gets a very good feel for what that bill is all about. They understand completely what's in this bill. So when they see a counterfeit bill come along, they know it's not the authentic thing. So, aren't you glad it wasn't a $5 bill? Well, here's the point of that particular illustration is that we will know those great pretenders if we understand the scriptures. If we understand the word of God accurately, if we understand what God is telling us and we see the real deal right here, then nobody will fool us, right? Well, not so fast. Inevitably, there's going to be some great pretenders that we won't be able to ferret out, okay? The word says that only God can determine who these people are. In fact, Satan, Satan is one of the greatest deceivers. He's the ultimate great pretender. And during the end times, in Matthew 13:22, it says this. It says, for, Christ's, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So... Is it possible for us not to catch them? Yes, I I really believe it is. I think that people will come along and emulate those great miracles. In fact, it says in Matthew chapter 7 that we've done great miracles. We've healed people. 
We've prophesied. And we have to be very careful when we see these charismatic type events occur, either in this country or around the world, whether it's authentic or not. But ultimately, the Lord will sort out the goats from the sheep, won't he? We have no fear. God will take care of those people. Well, moving along here, the king asked the intruder the question, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? Of course, the king knows the answer to that question. We kind of batted that, that one around a little bit too. You know, Why would he ask a, a question when he knows the answer already? Well, there's a couple of couple explanations that I've come across. And, you know, we know that God is a just God. We know that he's fair and merciful. But he also wishes to demonstrate his mercy to the nations. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, at the great white throne judgment, those people will stand before the Lord. The books will be opened. This is for non-believers, those that do not embrace the gospel. And they'll be given an opportunity to respond But what will they say? Nothing. They know they're already condemned. They know that they're already on their way to eternal damnation because they knew the answers ahead of time. They knew that they rejected God. So God is fair and just and merciful. But, of course, this man doesn't have a response. He's speechless because he knows his goose is cooked, isn't it? He's not supposed to be there. He's been caught. So the king takes immediate action and casts that person out into a place that we want to talk a little bit about. And then we'll end our service. Verse 13 says this, The king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just like the angry king who destroyed those rebels, in part one of our, our, pro, our, of our passage here, for rejecting the servants and killing them, just like that king killed those wicked servants and destroyed their city, this king now will cast the great pretender into hell. The consequences of remaining unworthy, what are they? Well, it's to be cast into a place of utter, utter darkness, Hell is described as a place of terrible torment. It's a lake of fire reserved for the devil and all of his angels where the flesh is not burned up. Can you imagine being in a flame and the flesh is not burned up? It's not consumed. Horrible thing to listen to. Where the worm doesn't die and people are tormented day and night forever and ever. You know, I read a um, sermon from Charles Spurgeon here recently called Heaven and Hell. And it will give you a very, very stark reality of what hell is all about and how we as believers should be compelled to beckon those people to come to the wedding feast. Well, it is a horrible place and uh, one day we'll devote a sermon to hell and what it's about. But there's over 95 references to this place in the Old and New Testament, but thank the Lord, there's many, many more places that explain how to avoid hell. So, my last point, how does one become worthy of the kingdom? Verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Just this past week, I had a conversation with a friend over lunch, 
and he had been recently baptized in his church, and I praise the Lord. He's growing in his faith. But he had a question. He says, you know, Phil, he says, you know, in my church, 20 or 30 people are coming forward for baptism every month. Every month they're coming forward for baptism. And, uh, you know, my question is, uh, aren't these people born again because they are obedient in believers' baptism? And I pointed out some of the scriptures we're, we're referring to here, and I said, you know what? If you understand about the great pretender, possibly they may not all be saved. In order to be considered worthy of the kingdom, we must be given the wedding garment by God himself. Now, the scripture is very, very um, plain about this. When we are talking about salvation, the response to the gospel call requires two things. And nearly in every passage that you read, when they talk about responding to the gospel call, there's two things that are evident. One is repentance, and the other one is faith. And I talked to my friend. I said, you know what? Everybody wants a ticket out of hell. They don't want to go there. They know enough that they don't want to chance the possibility of ending up eternally separated from God. So, of course, they're going to respond to the gospel. But the real question is, are they willing to make God Lord in their lives? That means they have to change their attitudes and actions. It's called repentance. Repentance. Now, true repentance and faith are created by the Holy Spirit through what we call the inward or effectual work of the Holy Spirit, responding to the outward call or the general gospel call, which is the preached word of God. The inner call enables our heart to respond to the outer call or the gospel call. Both are important. In fact, no one will be saved without the gospel call, without the outer call. And who gives that outer call? We do. God places that on us. It's our job to beckon people to come to the wedding celebration, believers. We're his only plan at this point. Give a tract. Encourage people. Preach to them. Whatever way it takes. Many millions of people will hear the gospel call. We don't know those people that have been affected by the effectual or effective call, which is the inward call, where the heart is prepared to receive the gospel. We don't know. But many millions of people will not respond because their hearts have not been touched by the inward or effective call. So as a result, they do not accept Christ and they do not repent. And I believe today, folks, that the great pretender by and large is the person in our church who has responded to the gospel call, the outer call, but has not responded to the inward or effectual call. By way of application, you know, my, my message is very simple. Actually, there's three things we enable to do, and, and that is to glorify Christ, edify believers, and notify unbelievers. And I want to speak to any non-believers that might here. Maybe you're just, you haven't made a commitment to Jesus Christ. You haven't repented from your sins. You haven't embraced the gospel in the way that you know you should. You are in danger of eternal separation from God. And so it's important for you to understand what the wedding celebration is all about and the great benefit and the great blessings that come from knowing Christ. Come to the Savior. 
come to the wedding celebration today. He bids you come. Won't you come to the wedding celebration? Embrace Christ as your Savior. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father God, we just glorify you for your gospel, Father. We thank you that you have extended to us the wedding garment. Those of us who have embraced Christ have the wedding garment, Father. We've responded both the, in the inner or the effectual calling as well as the gospel call. Father, we praise you for that. We also ask that, Father, those around us would hear the gospel call from us. We ask you to give us divine appointments, Father. Give us opportunities to preach the gospel. And I think about Darren and Steve overseas right now, how hungry the people are to know you and how they will respond readily to the gospel. But in this country, not so. And Father, you are the author and sovereign over people's salvation, not us. But make us bold in our witness, Father. We thank you for making us worthy. We pray for those that are unworthy. And it's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.